This week's Parsha podcast is sponsored by Ben and Abby Pfefferman in appreciation of Rabbi Aaron Hach and Rabbi Tzvi Sittner of the Village Shul in Toronto for bringing so much light into our community. If you want to sponsor a Parsha podcast in honor of someone who has inspired you, or in memory of a loved one, in honor of someone's birthday, for any reason at all, you too can do so for a $180 donation to our organization, Torch. Please visit our website, torchweb.org, or email me at rabbiwalby at gmail.com. It's also Hanukkah, so Hanukkah Sameach to all. In fact, Parshas Miketz always falls out during the week of Hanukkah, and there are several Hanukkah podcasts that you may be interested in. On the Jewish History Podcast last year, we recorded a history of Hanukkah, and this year we recorded a Hanukkah primer to survey the themes, the backgrounds, and insights into making the holiday more meaningful, and that's on the This Jewish Life Podcast. I'm going to include all the links to those podcasts in the description of the episode. Parshas Miketz contains 146 verses, and it has a single, continuous storyline, picking up right where we left off last week, following the saga of Joseph in Egypt. We left off last week, he was in prison, and this week we're going to read about his meteoric rise to becoming a monarch, to becoming the viceroy of Egypt, and his brothers and family in Canaan, the land of Israel, and their fateful meanings. Even though there's going to be 146 verses dedicated to the storyline, we're not going to have it resolved until next week. When the Parsha begins, it was two years to the day after the events of last week's Parsha, and Pharaoh had a dream. Like we mentioned last week, dreams are sometimes an element of prophecy, and the more connected someone is with the spiritual realm, the more spiritual their dreams are. Pharaoh must have obviously been someone who had a certain spiritual sensitivity by the fact that he's about to experience two prophetic dreams. A few weeks ago, we read about Hagar, who became the maidservant of Abraham and Sarah, and Rashi told us that Hagar was initially an Egyptian princess. But when Abraham came to Egypt, Pharaoh was so impressed and moved by Abraham and Sarah that he told his daughter Hagar, it's better for you to be a maidservant for Abraham than to be a princess in Egypt. And he gave Hagar, his daughter, to Abraham and Sarah as a maidservant. It's unlikely that the Pharaoh of Abraham is the same Pharaoh of Egypt, but it shows a certain consistency with a spiritual sensitivity and acuity amongst these Pharaohs. So what's Pharaoh's dreams? He's standing by the river, by the Nile, and there's seven robust and healthy cows that emerge from the water, and they start grazing. And soon afterwards, seven frail and gaunt cows come out of the river, and they too appear next to the cows on the bank of the river. And suddenly, the cows that were weak and emaciated consumed the healthy and robust cows, and despite eating the healthy cows, the seven stinny, frail cows remained stinny and frail. And Pharaoh woke up. He fell back asleep, and he had a second dream. 
and there's seven ears of grain sprouting from a single stalk. And again, seven healthy, robust ears of grain, and then seven other ears of grain, thin, weak, emaciated, they too sprout up, and the ears of grain that were weak and frail swallow up the seven healthy and full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it is a dream. In the morning, he's all agitated, he's frustrated, he calls to all his gurus, to all his savants, to all his necromancers, to all the wise men, to all his advisors, and he tells them the dream, and no one is able to sufficiently assuage Pharaoh, no one's able to interpret them in a way that he finds palatable. Rashi tells us one of them suggested that he's going to have seven daughters, and then all seven daughters are going to die. A second interpretation was he's going to conquer seven countries, and then he's going to lose them all. Nothing seems to resonate with Pharaoh. And then the cupbearer, that same individual that used to be a cellmate with Joseph before he was restored to his post, he speaks up and he tells Pharaoh, I'm going to mention my transgressions today. I made a huge blunder. Why? And he recounts the whole story. Pharaoh got mad at his servants, and he placed me, the butler, together with the baker in jail with the chamberlain of the butchers. And we had the dreams, and I had a dream, and the interpretation of his dream, and he had the interpretation of my dream. And there was this Hebrew youth, this slave, He's referring to Joseph, of course, and he's there, and he was uh, with us in prison. We told over our dreams to him, and he was obviously adept at interpretation of dreams. And he accurately told us that you, the cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your post, and the baker is going to be hanged in three days. So he's telling Pharaoh, you are someone who's very disturbed by the fact that you don't have an interpretation to your dream, I may have the guy for you. And that, of course, is Joseph. So Joseph now has been two years since he had any contact with the baker or the butler. And in verse 14, we read how quickly Joseph is going to go from being languishing, rotting in prison to being ushered before Pharaoh. So Pharaoh sent and summoned Joseph, and they rushed him from the dungeon. He shaved and changed his clothes, and he came to Pharaoh. Instantly, Joseph was elevated from the depths of despair in prison. He's cleaned, he's shaved, he's showered, brought to Pharaoh. The commentaries tell us that this is the model, the format through which redemption happens. Joseph, through no fault of his own, has really reached the the bottom, the bottom of the battle, the bottom of the pit. He was sold out by his brothers. He was sold as a slave multiple times. He was falsely accused of seducing his master's wife when really it was the other way around. He had a hope, he thought, with the baker and the butler appearing and interpreting the dreams of the butler correctly and making an exhortation for him to reach out to Pharaoh. But that too was dashed and it's been two years. And just like that, Pharaoh summons and he is before Pharaoh and he's standing before him all clean and ready to shine. The commentaries tell us redemption works instantly. There's a certain immediacy Joseph barely had time to shave, shower, he did a haircut, 
and he's going to be before Pharaoh. And before the conversation is over, Pharaoh's going to appoint him to be his second in command, to be the viceroy of Egypt. Instantly, there's this grand transformation from despair and darkness to a great light. One of the more modern commentaries suggested that redemption, certainly of the messianic version, it's not like waiting for a car service or a taxi or an Uber, where you could still kind of be in your house and wait, and they'll beep, they'll wait for you outside, and you could get your stuff and go into the car. It's like a train. You have to be there right on the platform, ready to jump on board, because it's going to happen so quickly, you have to be ready to climb on board, because otherwise you might miss him. So Joseph is now meeting Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells to Joseph, I dreamt a dream, but no one can interpret it. Now I heard it is said of you that you comprehend a dream to interpret it. Joseph, you come highly recommended. You have the best credentials. You are the guy I need. This is an incredible offer to Joseph. What does Joseph respond? Joseph answered Pharaoh, that's beyond me. It is God who will respond with Pharaoh's welfare. This is like an interview of a lifetime. Joseph has been interviewed by Pharaoh to fulfill a very critical role. And he gets the question, can you do this job? I heard that you can. And what does Joseph say? Actually, no, I can't. It's not me. It's God who will respond with Pharaoh's welfare. This shows us Joseph's character. It's possible that after Joseph told Pharaoh that it's not him, he doesn't have that talent, Pharaoh may have said, okay, go back to your dungeon, go back to continuing rotting. Or maybe Pharaoh could have given him the treatment dispensed to the baker, where Pharaoh is not interested in him and he severed his head. But Joseph answers quickly and decisively with humility, with tremendous faith. It's not me. It's from the Almighty. Pharaoh tells him, okay, let me give you the dream. And he recounts the dreams. There was the first dream where the seven emaciated cows swallowing the seven healthy cows. There's the second dream where the seven weak heirs of grain consume the seven healthy ones. And he wakes up and he does not have a solution. Joseph tells him, the dreams of Pharaoh is a single one. They're not two separate dreams. They're one dream. What God is about to do, he is telling Pharaoh. The seven healthy cows, well, they are seven years, seven years of plenty, seven years where the land is going to produce a bounty. The seven good heirs, they too refer to those seven years. It's all one big dream. The seven emaciated and bad cows and the the seven emaciated and weak and withered heirs, they too refer to seven years, but seven years that come after the seven years of plenty. You're going to have seven years of plenty, and then it's going to be quickly followed with seven years of famine. God, says Joseph, is telling you, Pharaoh, what he's about to do. And the fact that the dreams are repeated, well, that's telling you another message. The message is that it's about to happen. It's not going to happen in some time down the road. It's imminently awaiting us. God is hastening. There's going to be seven years 
of abundance and then seven years of famine that will ravage the land. And just like those seven skinny cows did not show the impression of satiation from consuming the seven healthy cows, so too the seven good years are going to be forgotten during the seven years of famine. Continues Joseph. Now, Pharaoh should appoint a discerning and wise man to oversee the operations in Egypt and to stockpile and prepare the land for the seven years of abundance. You have seven years to prepare for the seven years of famine, stockpile the food, safeguard it, use it to reserve against the seven years of famine, be prepared for the absolute devastation that's about to hit the land of Egypt in seven years from now. So there's a few interesting things to pull out of this narrative. For one, Joseph tells Pharaoh that even though there are two separate dreams, one of the cows and one of the wheat, it's really only one message. Well, why is it repeated? Why does God deliver this single message with two separate dreams? Well, that, the reason why it's doubled is because it's telling you the time frame, the timetable. The timetable is right now. It's happening immediately. Do not delay. It's been pointed out that 13 years prior, we find out in a little bit that Joseph is 30 years old. So he was sold as a slave when he was 17. So it's been 13 years since Joseph had his two dreams, the two dreams where his brothers are bowing down to him. And it's interesting that Joseph himself is telling us that when a dream is doubled, that means it's happening immediately. Yet, with Joseph, we know from the rest of this week's Parsha, Joseph indeed is going to become a king and his brothers are going to bow down before him. But here we see that it's happening immediately and Joseph had two dreams and that did not happen immediately. So how do we reconcile that? So there's maybe a few ways to reconcile that. For one, we could suggest that the two dreams that Joseph had were different dreams. The first dreams were his brothers bowing down to him, and the second dream was his brothers and his father and mother. So maybe that's one resolution to the problem. Alternatively, we, we, we could suggest that really Joseph's dreams indeed were implemented immediately. It's just part of his ascendancy. This is a theme that we spoke about last week. Part of his ascendancy to the throne was the fact that he was sold by his brothers and eventually sold to Egypt and was the fact that he was falsely accused by his master's wife for impropriety. All that was part of the plan and therefore really it was immediate. It's just sometimes the means by which God uses to achieve the end result is not the ones that you would normally anticipate. Now, Joseph tells Pharaoh not only the interpretation of the dream, but also what he should do about it. Not only what's about to happen, not only is Joseph forecasting the future by interpreting the dream, but he also tells Pharaoh that what you should really do is hire someone, someone who's competent, someone who's capable, someone who's a discerning and wise man, let them oversee this operation, a seven-year preparation for the seven years of famine. Why does Joseph editorialize the dreams. After all, Pharaoh didn't tell him what to do about the dreams. Pharaoh only requested 
that he interpret them and let Pharaoh make the decision of how to move forward with this newfound information. So one of the commentaries suggests that this was all part of the interpretation of the dream. Joseph told Pharaoh, why is God telling this to you? The reason why the Almighty showed you this dream is because he wants you to do something about it. And therefore, verse 33 and on, where Joseph tells Pharaoh to find someone to oversee the plans of seven years of plenty, that's all part of the scope of his role as the interpreter of Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh is duly impressed by Joseph, and he makes a pronouncement. Pharaoh said to his servants, could we find another one like him, a man in whom the spirit of God exists? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there could be no one so discerning and wise as you. You are going to be my hired hand. You are going to be the man appointed to oversee the seven years of plenty. You are going to be my second in command. You shall be in charge of my palace. And by your command, shall all my people be sustained. The only benefit that I'm going to have over you, only by the throne, shall I outrank you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, verse 41, See, I have placed you in charge of all of the land of Israel. Pharaoh removed his ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand. He dressed him in garments of fine linen. He placed a gold chain upon his neck. He had him ride in the second royal chariot. I guess that's the Egyptian equivalent of Air Force Two. And they pro- proclaimed before him Avreich, and thus he appointed him over the land of Egypt. Pharaoh says to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, and without you, no man may lift up his hand or foot in all of the land of Egypt. You're going to be in charge of everything. I'm the titular head, I'm Pharaoh, but everything else is under your purview. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Tzafnas Paneach. He gave him a name, which Rashi tells us means the one who uncovers the hidden. He gave him a wife, Asnas, the daughter of Potiphera, the chief of On, for a wife, like we mentioned last week. This is the daughter of Potiphar, or Potiphar, the same individual to whom Joseph had worked and to whose wife had falsely accused Joseph of impropriety. Thus, Joseph emerged in charge of the land of Egypt, and he was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's present, and he passed through the entire land of Egypt. Joseph woke up one morning. He was a prisoner. He's been in prison for multiple years for a crime he did not commit. And he went to sleep that night, having traveled throughout the land of Egypt in the chariot of royalty, dressed like a king and with a mandate from Pharaoh to oversee every aspect of the Egyptian country. There's an amazing midrash that points out that there's 11 different distinct honors and plaudits that Joseph is given here by Pharaoh. And it connects them to the 11 different ways that Joseph overcame his temptation with the wife of Potiphar. Because Joseph overcame 
his urges to sin with the wife of Potiphar, for each one of those elements of resistance, he was granted an honor and applaud it. And I think there's an overarching lesson that Joseph exercised superlative self-control, and therefore he's the one who was worthy of being given control. He mastered over his Yetzirah, over his evil inclination, and therefore he is the rightful master over the land of Egypt. Now, his wife is Osnas, the daughter of Potiphera. So there's an interesting backstory here brought in the name of the Midrash. Simply stated, this is just the daughter of his former master, Potiphar, and his wife. And that's how Rashi tells us it, it is. This is the daughter of Potiphar. The Midrash tells us something very fascinating. A few weeks ago, we read about Jacob's daughter and the half-sister of Joseph, Dina, being assaulted and raped by Shechem, the son of Hamor. And then, of course, Shem and Levi come and they decimate the whole city. But the Midrash tells us that indeed Dina, she became pregnant as a result of that encounter. And she had a baby. The problem was that this baby grew up with a little bit of a cloud over her. And therefore, Jacob put her up for adoption. And she was adopted through a long circuitous route by Potiphar and his wife because they were barren. They weren't able to have any children. And therefore, they were. she was like the adopted daughter of Potiphar and his wife, but she was ironically Joseph's actual niece, which is a very interesting backstory here that the Midrash tells that Joseph... He didn't marry some random Egyptian woman, moreover, the daughter of his previous accuser. Rather, she was the adopted daughter of Potiphar and his wife, but she was actually the daughter of Dina. Just really interesting idea here in the Midrash. So Joseph is in charge of the land of Egypt, and the seven years of plenty and abundance begin. And the earth produces incredibly, there's an incredible bounty, and the crop is just a booming one, and Joseph is gathering all the food of the seven years that came to pass in the land of Egypt, even though there was tremendous plenty. And of course, under those circumstances, it's very hard to be frugal. It's very hard to pinch pennies. Still, Joseph is amassing food. He takes the grain from each locale and stores it in the earth for each locale to maximize its shelf life. And he amasses grain like the sand of the, of the sea in great abundance until he ceased counting, for there was no number. It was such an astonishing feat of coordination, of logistics. Joseph managed to oversee the entire agricultural infrastructure of Egypt and to stockpile tremendous amounts of food until it was just impossible to even keep track of it. There was just so much. Joseph also flourished in his personal life. He had two sons born before the famine had not yet set in. Rashi tells us that the fact that they were born before the famine set in, it's not a coincidence because there is a prohibition from someone to procreate during the time 
when there is a famine. It's prohibited to engage in marital relations during the years of famine. When the whole world is suffering, it's improper for someone to be overly joyous. Similarly, if you remember, in Parshas Noach, we read that for the duration of the time of the ark, both humans and animals were prohibited from conjugal relations. So Joseph has two sons born to him via his marriage to Asnas, the daughter of Potiphera. The first son is Menashe. The word Menashe means to forget. And the reason why Joseph named his son first his firstborn son Menashe was because God has made me to forget all my hardship and all my father's household. And the second son is Ephraim, which means to be fruitful, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The commentaries are a little bothered by Joseph's naming his first son, Menashe, because God has made me forget all my hardship and all of my father's household. It seems kind of strange that Joseph would forget where he came from. He would forget his roots. He would forget his father and his household and who he really stands for, what he is as an individual. It seems kind of problematic. So it's been suggested that really Joseph didn't forget it. He just felt that it wasn't as vivid as it used to be. That same connection, the same identity that he had previously was not quite the same the way it was. He didn't really forget it, but it wasn't the same thing like it was prior. You know, now we're in the middle of the holiday of Hanukkah, and during one of the prayers that we say, the Alanisim prayer that we say during Hanukkah, we say that the Greeks, the Assyrian Greeks, wanted to make us forget, to forget the Torah. What does that mean? Did, did the Greeks really imagine that get us forget the whole Torah? But maybe it's similar to what Joseph is talking about over here. They won't actually forget his household, forget Jacob, forget his family. He lost that same tight connection that he had previously. He got somewhat acculturated or somewhat involved in the Egyptian way of life. After all, he had to. He was involved in a very intimate level. Similarly, the Greeks didn't make, didn't anticipate that we would forget the Torah entirely, but maybe that strong connection where the Jew and Torah, the Jewish nation and Torah, that's our pastime, that's what we live for, that is our calling as a nation, that's what they wanted to diminish by making us forget the Torah. The seven years of abundance concluded, and now the seven years of famine began. There was famine in all the lands, Everywhere there was famine, but in Egypt, well, they were prepared and they had bread. But the bread, of course, was being controlled by Joseph. When all the land of Egypt hungered, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. So Pharaoh said to all of Egypt, go to Joseph. Whatever he tells you, you should do. What does it mean, whatever he tells you to do, you should do? So Rashi tells us something very interesting and surprising that Joseph would tell the people who came to him for bread, he would tell them that he's only giving them bread on condition that they circumcise. And therefore, the Egyptians came to Pharaoh and they said, he's telling us to circumcise. Pharaoh responds, whatever he tells you to do, you should do. That's what Rashi tells us. Really interesting. So indeed, the people had no choice. And the only way they could get food was to circumcise. They, in fact, did that. 
a really bizarre idea that that uh, we see here, and also maybe a problematic one. We know in Judaism, our religion does not believe in proselytization and certainly not forced proselytization. And it's almost never happened throughout our history. But here, Joseph is compelling the Egyptians to circumcise, and only on that condition is he willing to provide them with vital, necessary nourishment. What is the meaning behind that? So one idea is that Joseph, after all, he was invested in preserving the physical lives of the Egyptians. He cared for them. He worked so hard. He was working night and day to provide physical food so they could live. He became invested in them. He became interested in their well-being. And therefore, he said, I'm not going to just feed them physically, but let them atrophy and devolve spiritually. I want them to flourish in every arena. So therefore, Joseph said, if, if, if you want to have the food, I'm going to force you, because that's my leverage, I'm going to force you to also invest in your spiritual half. The Midrash tells us, if someone just circumcised, then they're already guaranteed a portion in Olam Haba, in the afterlife. Joseph was invested in the well-being of his Egyptian compatriots, and therefore he not only tended to their physical needs, but he also wanted to provide for them spiritually by getting them to be more spiritually attuned. As, as we know, that the, the circumcision, as we spoke about in the past, is all about embracing the spiritual lives that we live. That's one suggestion to explain that. Alternatively, Joseph knew from his dreams that his brothers and his family, indeed, are about to come to Egypt. He didn't know when, he didn't know the timeline, but he was anticipating this to happen. And he was worried that his circumcised brothers might be somewhat out of place, maybe stigmatized once they arrived into Egypt. And to circumvent that, he ordered that the Egyptians themselves, they circumcise or else they get no food. Just a really interesting idea here that we see in Rashi. So the famine spreads out all over the face of the earth. Joseph opens up the storage houses and the containers and sells provisions to Egypt and all of earth, so not just Egypt, other countries as well, they come to Egypt to buy provisions and Egypt becomes a hub, a trading hub for food for people to survive this terrible famine. Chapter 42 pivots back to Canaan, back to the land of Israel, where Jacob is also suffering the effects of the famine. And therefore, he says to his sons, don't make yourself conspicuous. Maybe we have the ability to sustain ourselves, but if everyone's going to Egypt, we shouldn't make believe like we have more than everyone else. And therefore, I heard there's provisions in Egypt. Go down there, go purchase some of it for us so we could live and not die. So Joseph's brothers, 10 of them, went down to buy grain from Egypt. Joseph has 11 brothers. Of course, the exception here is Benjamin. Jacob sends the 10 brothers that conspired to sell him into slavery or to try to kill him 
Of course, Reuben and Judah tried to save him, as we read last week. But these same ten brothers are going now down to Egypt to procure food. Jacob is unwilling to send Benjamin with his brothers. He's worried lest a disaster will befall him. So they head down from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. It's interesting, in verse 2, Jacob tells his children, Redu Shama, go descend down to Egypt. And he uses an unusual term, Redu, descend down to Egypt, go down to Egypt. Rashi tells us that the gematria, the numerical value of the word Redu, as we know, every Hebrew letter has a number that corresponds to it. And the numbers of the word Redu is 210, which equal the exact number of years that the Jewish people are going to end up in the land of Egypt before the Exodus. So Jacob is like unknowingly and unwittingly spitting out prophecy with the words that he uses to tell his children, go down to Egypt. In verse 3, the 10 sons of Jacob are called the brothers of Joseph. And it's interesting, Rashi jumps on this, that even though they had sold them, they were beginning to regret it. And they were committing themselves to be brothers of Joseph, to re-engage with him in kinship and in brotherhood, and maybe even, as we will see later, maybe even try to find Joseph, whom they know is alive and whom they know was headed to Egypt. So they head down to Egypt and they enter among the arrivals. Rashi tells us that they enter in 10 separate gates. They they don't all go in the same entrance. It's kind of like when you go into a foreign country, you have to go through passport control. They went on 10 different lines or 10 different gates or 10 different entrances into the land. Why? So Rashi tells us one reason, because they were 10 healthy, robust, muscular men, and therefore if they all came together as a team, it would look so imposing and so impressive that there may be some evil eye. People may be envious, may be jealous, and that's not a good thing. It doesn't portend well for them. That's one idea. Later on, we see another reason why they entered in 10 different gates, to be able to spread out as much as possible over the land, maybe one of them will bump into Joseph. Joseph, after all, in their eyes, was sold as a slave to Egypt. It's possible, maybe even likely in their eyes, that he's still a slave somewhere. Maybe we'll bump into him. Let's increase our chances of a chance encounter with Joseph by going in 10 different ways till we reach our destination. So Joseph, he's the viceroy over the land. Everyone who wants food has to come to him. And his brothers, they wait their turn in line, and then they come and they bow before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph sees his brothers, and he recognizes them, and he puts on a facade. He acts like them as a stranger, and he speaks to them harshly. He says to them, where are you from? And they respond, well, we're from the land of Canaan. We're here to buy food. Joseph right away recognizes these are his brothers and he's able to identify each one. This is Reuben, this is Shimon, this is Levi, this is Judah, this is Yisachar, etc. But they do not 
recognize him. And right away, Joseph recalls the dreams. In the dreams, they were bowing down to him, and now they're bowing down to him. And he says to them, you're not here to buy food. You're here because you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. You've come to find the vulnerabilities. You want to attack us, and that's your true purpose. And this is going to kickstart a whole cat and mouse episode where Joseph is going to accuse, make a false accusation. He knows exactly who they are and he knows exactly what their identity is, but he's going to be toying with them. He's going to be playing with them. He's going to be pushing their buttons for the duration of this Parsha. And it does raise some really important questions. You know, Joseph's actions need to be contemplated. There's some problems with his treatment of his brothers, and I would even argue his treatment of his father. Joseph has been in Egypt now for 20 years, and he must imagine that his father is apoplectic with the fact that he is still alive, or is he dead, or we don't have a body. His, he must know that his father is very nervous about him. Yet, Joseph does not send a message back to Jacob, assuring him that he's okay. And even after Joseph becomes a king, he doesn't send the messenger with a letter. It wasn't that far away to go tell Jacob he's doing all right. His brothers finally show up and he does not reveal his identity to them. In fact, he accuses them of being spies. He's going to demand that they bring Benjamin. He's going to imprison them. He's going to take one of them as a hostage. He's going to play this game where he's going to return their money. He's going to be framing Benjamin for stealing a goblet. He's going to unjustly accuse him of a crime he didn't commit. How do we understand Joseph's behavior? How do we understand what he's doing or what he did? So a lot of the commentaries talk about this. And I want to share with you some of the ideas throughout the rest of the Parsha. But just as an introduction, the Ramban tells us something very fascinating. He says that Joseph knew his dreams, and he knew that they had to be fulfilled. And therefore, he wasn't willing to do something that would disrupt the dreams from being fulfilled in a natural, normal way. Therefore, he knew that his father would have to come down to Egypt and, so to speak, bow before him because Joseph is a king. And he did not want to expedite that. He didn't want to interfere with God's plans. And therefore, he was not able to tell his father that he was alive in Egypt. And even if that meant that Jacob's going to have to suffer for the duration of those years, he understood it was a real dream and therefore it had to happen. He sees them and he right away speaks harshly. And one of the commentaries suggests that maybe he speaks harshly to disguise his voice he doesn't reveal himself and he doesn't want them to pick up on it. And he demands that they bring Benjamin. Why? Because in the dream, it was all of his brothers bowing down before him. He sees 10 of his brothers. He knows there's one, there's one that's missing. After all, there were 11 bundles of wheat that bowed, that bowed down to his bundle in the previous parsha. In addition, there was the, the second dream where his, the father and mother, the sun and the moon, the 11 stars bowed down before him. He didn't see Benjamin, and therefore he came up with this scheme to falsely accuse them of being spies so that they should bring 
Benjamin to them. Now, why does he accuse them of being spies specifically? So there's a few different answers. Uh, One answer is that Joseph was very wary that they may do some investigation into his character. They may find out about him for a variety of reasons. By accusing them of being spies, they're going to be very circumspect about going to investigate Joseph because they don't want to make, give off the appearance that they are indeed spies. And therefore, he kind of pushed them into a corner. They cannot investigate Joseph's character and nature and identity without giving credence to the claim that, he, that they are spies. In addition, the Ramban says that Joseph had some credibility in his claim that they were spies because, after all, these were respected men. They would send their servant to go procure food. If they went themselves, it seems kind of fishy, and there is some grounds to accuse them of engaging in some sort of spying reconnaissance mission. Now, it's interesting here. The brothers don't recognize Joseph, even though Joseph recognizes the brothers. So Rashi tells us that he spoke through a translator, and it was, and he was speaking in Egyptian. And it was also 20 years later, and when he left, he was only 17. He didn't have a full beard. They were a little bit older. They did have a full beard. And that's why it was possible for them to not recognize him, even though he was able to recognize them. The Ramban hints at maybe a different answer, and that is the brothers in last week's Parsha were so incredulous when Joseph suggested that he is going to lord over them, he's going to be a king, they couldn't possibly fathom that the dream indeed came true. They had kind of locked their mind. It was one thing was clear in their mind, Joseph was a total megalomaniac. He was in no way destined for kingship. And therefore, one thing is for sure, he's not a king. Is he alive? Maybe yes, maybe no. But he's definitely not a king. And therefore, they didn't even consider, it didn't even cross their mind to think maybe he really is this man that's talking to them in Egyptian, this man who's playing very a very harsh game with them, this man really is Joseph. They never even consider it, considered it because it, it ran against their prior prejudice against Joseph. So after Joseph accuses them of being spies, they quickly try to defend themselves. And they say, no, 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 we're not spies. We came to buy food. And they give him a little bit of background. We're all the sons of one man. We never were spies. And he says, no, 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 you are spies. You're here to check out the vulnerabilities of the land. So they elaborate on their story. We're actually 12 brothers. Even though there's only 10 of us here, there's two more. One of them is gone. The youngest one is with their father. And Joseph says, oh, you're changing your story. You're acting like someone who's not telling the truth. First you say it's us, and now you tell us there's more brothers, there's one brother that's there, one brother that's not there, one brother that's missing, one brother was the father. The only way I am trusting that you are not spies is if you bring your youngest brother here, you send one of you, go run up to the land of Canaan while the rest of you are imprisoned. 
I'm promising, I'm swearing on the life of Pharaoh, you're really spies unless you're able to disprove that by bringing Benjamin. And he threw them in prison for good measure for three days to let them mull over their move, their next move. Now, Rashi reveals a little bit more of the dialogue that happened between Joseph and his brothers. Rashi says that that the brothers told him that they actually one of their purposes to coming back to Egypt is to try to find Joseph. And then Joseph, who obviously they didn't realize was Joseph, inquired of them, well, what if you found him? But his owner will only sell him to you for a very exorbitant price. Would you buy him back? And the brothers respond to Joseph, definitely. Well, what if the owner of your missing brother refuses to sell him back at any price. What do you do then? And they responded to him, well, we came either to kill or to get killed. If we find Joseph, we're not leaving without them. And therefore, that was the pretext for Joseph to say, you came here to kill. I, in fact, even know that two of you decimated a whole city. And therefore, that's more evidence to the fact that you guys are spies. But what's actually happening here behind the scenes is that Joseph is trying to piece together as much information as possible. And he's finding out that the brother's attitude towards him has changed. They want to find him. They want to redeem him. They want to buy him back. They feel a feelings of kinship and brotherhood to them. And Joseph is is not willing to reveal himself until he knows that, A, the dreams are being fulfilled, B, the brothers have repented, and he's also going to do whatever he can to aid them in their atonement. So, for example, Joseph throws them into prison. So, simply understood, it's like Joseph wants to punish them or Joseph wants to intimidate them. The Balhaturim, one of the commentaries in the Torah, he says that, the brothers actually did three separate crimes against Joseph. Number one, they denuded him of his clothing and of his special tunic. Number two, they chucked him into a pit. And number three, they sold him as a slave. They did three sins, and therefore, to atone for those three sins, Joseph threw them into prison for three days to help cleanse them from their misdeeds. And this is what we're going to see with Joseph throughout the whole process. He is not going to avenge the mistreatment that his brothers did to him. And he's in fact going to go the opposite route. He is going to recognize that it's all part of God's master plan. And he's going to take the steps to ensure that his brothers are going to be atoned and to make certain that their that their misdeeds of the past are indeed a thing of the past. So after three days of being in prison, Joseph tells them, this is what you need to do. I'm not going to have all you in prison. You send one to get Benjamin. I'll do the opposite. I'll keep one of you in prison and the rest of you go back to the land of Canaan and go bring Benjamin. Take with you provisions for your households. Just come back with Benjamin and that way you won't die. And that was the plan. In the meantime, the brothers begin conversing with themselves. They realize that they got themselves into this terrible imbroglio, 
and they start reflecting about why they deserve this terrible punishment that they have to bring Benjamin and they're going to have to give up a hostage and this viceroy of Egypt is treating them so bad. And right away, they start regretting and reflecting on what they did to Joseph, even though it's been 20 years since those events of when they sold Joseph, the brothers, like the Torah and the Talmud encourages us to do, they are reflecting on the bad things that happened to them and trying to understand what its roots are. Why is God doing this to them? And they right away attribute what's been happening to them here, they attribute that to what they did to their brothers. Indeed, we are guilty, they say, concerning our brother. We saw his heartfelt anguish. He pleaded with us. We didn't listen. We paid no heed. And that is why this anguish has come upon us. They attributed their treatment of Joseph to the treatment that they are now receiving, ironically, from Joseph himself. But of course, they don't know that. And this is what we're trained to do. The Talmud tells us when someone has bad things that happen to them, they right away should examine their deeds to find out what message God is sending to them. The Rashbam here tells us that they understood that we threw Joseph into a pit and therefore now we have been thrown into jail as well, direct measure for measure for what we did with Joseph. And they continue, Reuben says, well, you should have listened to me. I said, don't kill him. And and all the while, Joseph is listening. Joseph understands. They don't realize that he understands because there's an interpreter. But he's emotionally moved by this. He, of course, feels an urge to reveal his identity to his brothers. But he does not do that. He goes to the side room and cries, returns after he cleans his eyes, and takes Shimon, Simeon, as a hostage and gives them food to refill their vessels. He instructs his people to put their money back in the sack, and he sends them packing. He has Shimon as a hostage, and the rest of them have their packages, their satchels, bursting with food and provisions, but also secretly holding their money. Why did he pitch Shimon specifically to be imprisoned, to be the hostage until they brought Benjamin? Rashi tells us two reasons. Because Shimon was the instigator of the initial plan to murder Joseph. And the commentaries explain that this is not just a revenge mission. Rather, Joseph realizes that of the ten brothers, Shimon, Simeon, needs the most atonement and therefore, he's the one who it's appropriate to have him be hostage. Alternatively, Joseph wanted to separate Shimon and Levi. They were a tag team that together could be quite volatile. And therefore, he didn't want them to attack him before his scheme, before his ruse, before his plan is fully developed. And therefore, he made sure to separate Shimon and Levi so they, can consp- they, so they cannot conspire to kill him. As the brothers are traveling back along the way, one of them opens up their sack and finds the money. And right away, their hearts sink. They turn trembling one to another, 
what is this that God has done to us? Again, we see the same ideal that when something when something bad happens, they're trying to figure out exactly why did God do that to us. They knew that this, this was some sort of message from the Almighty, but they're trying to figure out what exactly is the measure for measure. What did they do to deserve this terrible misunderstanding that they almost took food without paying for it? And of course, Shimon is this man's hostage and they're probably going to need his services again, and they're going to have to present him Benjamin too. They get back to the land of Canaan. They tell Jacob everything that happened. They tell him the whole story, the whole dialogue back and forth that they had with Joseph. And then as they are unpacking, they all realize that all of them have their monies, and Jacob is terribly despondent, I lost Joseph, I lost Shimon, you want to take away Benjamin now, everything that I have is totally collapsing. Reuben tries to convince him, you take my two sons and kill them if I don't return Benjamin safely. And Jacob responds, well, what do I gain by that? You know, your sons are my grandchildren, it doesn't help me. What's going to be? I'm going to suffer my pain and sorrow all the way to the grave. And thus concludes chapter 42. Chapter 43 is some time later, and the famine worsens. And again, Jacob tells his sons, go back to Egypt. There's still food there. We don't have any more left over from what you brought in the initial trip. Go get us some more food. But Judah tells him, no, the man was quite clear. You will not see my face unless you have Benjamin. If you want to send us down, you have to give us Benjamin. That's the only way that we could go and buy food. And and Judah reasons with his father. It's understandable you don't want to send Benjamin. But what happens if you don't send Benjamin? Then he's going to die for sure. If you send him down with us, I'll guarantee him. And it's quite likely that maybe everything will work out. We'll save Shimon. We'll bring back Benjamin. Who knows? But if you leave him here, then everyone's going to die. The the famine is very severe. So Jacob relented and he says, okay, I will send you with Benjamin. And like Jacob's encounter with Esau, he prepares a very robust gift. He takes a whole bunch of fruits and nuts and goodies that are only available in the land of Israel to give as a gift for Joseph. What can you give a man that has all the money in the world? Well, maybe some food that they don't have access to because of the nature of where they are living. He gives them double the money, money for the first trip, money for the second trip. He gives them Benjamin and he says a prayer. May Hashem, may the Almighty grant you mercy before the man that he may release to you your other brother, as well as Benjamin. Jacob does not identify Shimon by name. He says, your other brother. Rashi tells us this is another instance where Jacob is speaking prophecy, but not realizing it. He says, your other brother. Indeed, what's going to happen in this next trip is that the brothers are going to actually encounter the other brother, not just the one that was taken hostage now, not just Shimon, but also Joseph. And as for me, continues Jacob, as I have bereaved, so I am bereaved. 
just as I have suffered from Joseph being taken, from Shimon being taken, I'll suffer if things go bad, if Benjamin does not return. The brothers arrive in Egypt and they meet Joseph again. Joseph instructs the people in charge of his house to prepare a feast. He wants to eat his meal together with these 11 brothers. They are very quick to try to pay their debt from last time. The man in charge tells him not to worry. Don't worry about it. I got your payment. We're good. They bring him to Joseph's house. They give him water to wash their feet. They give him food for the donkeys. They give the gift for Joseph. They're a little bit surprised that Joseph wants to eat with them. Again, they all bow down before him. So now all 11 of his brothers have bowed down before him. He is checking more of those boxes of what he wants to see before he reveals himself. He inquires about the welfare of them and their father. Is he still alive? And the brothers respond, your servant, our father, is at peace. He still lives. And then Joseph interacts with Benjamin, his full brother, And he asked them, is this your little brother of whom you spoke about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. There's a very interesting interaction here that Rashi tells us that happened between between Benjamin and Joseph. Joseph asked Benjamin, do you have any brothers? He says, well, yes, I have a brother from my mother, but but I don't know where he is. Well, do you have any sons? And he says, yes, I have 10 sons. Well, what are their names? And Benjamin starts to list the names of his 10 sons. And each one of his 10 sons is named after another element of Joseph, either his relationship with Joseph, all the terrible things that happened to Joseph, or Joseph's stature. And Joseph is overwhelmed by this gesture of his brother that again, he's consumed with compassion with his brother. He again, he runs to the next room. He cries and fortifies himself and returns to meet his brothers. It's interesting. We saw that Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and now we read about Benjamin having 10 sons. The Talmud says something very interesting. It says that Joseph was supposed to be another one of the forefathers. And just like his father Jacob, Joseph was destined to bear 12 sons. But because he didn't fully resist Potiphar's wife's seductions, 10 of those sons were given to Benjamin and Joseph was left with two. Now indeed, Joseph's two, Ephraim and Manasseh, we will read in a few weeks that they will become tribes of their own. Vis-a-vis those two sons, Joseph was indeed like his father, that his sons were the founders of tribes. So Joseph and his brothers have a meal together, even though they sit at separate tables. And the verse tells us that they ate and they drank and they became intoxicated with him. Rashi tells us, an astonishing factoid that from the day that the brothers had sold Joseph as a slave, they did not drink wine 
And in fact, he, Joseph, did not drink wine. This was a two-decade mourning period for everyone involved. Jacob, of course, was mourning. The brothers, even though they had thought they were justified in selling Joseph, they commiserated with Jacob and they withheld from wine. They refused to celebrate when their father Jacob was suffering. And Joseph, too, mourned, so to speak, alongside them. And now, for the first time in more than 20 years, they drank together and they became intoxicated. Joseph drank because, after all, now he's been reunited with all 11 of his brothers. And the obvious question is, well, why indeed did the brothers drink? And the commentators say a very clever answer. The brothers were accused of being spies. If they were to refrain from the offer of alcohol, it would be a sign that they are scared of what they might reveal when they're drunk. And therefore, the fact that they're able to drink and not be worried, that is proof that they are not spies. So they fulfilled their obligation. They brought Benjamin and things are good. He returns Shimon and he instructs the people of his home, of his household, to fill again the men's sacks with as much food as they could carry, again to return their money in the bottom of the sack. And then I want you to take my silver goblet, the goblet that I use for divination. I want you to place it in the satchel of the youngest one, in Benjamin's satchel. And the people followed Joseph's instructions precisely. And they're sent off. The men with their donkeys, everything has, they're happy, obviously. They have 11 of them. They got Shimon back. They have Benjamin intact, no problem. And as soon as they leave, Joseph lets them have a little bit of a head start. He sends people after them and they confront them. Why did you repay evil for good? Joseph was so good to you and you repay him by stealing his goblet, by taking this very important device that he uses to divine. You have done evil in how you have acted. So the brothers are very surprised by this. None of them stole any goblet. And they say, that's not true. Why would you say such a thing? It would be sacrilegious for your servants to do such a thing. Here, look, we return the money that we brought back with us the land of Canaan. We return the money for the first time. Why would we steal any silver or gold? In fact, they declared, if you find this goblet in our satchels, whoever stole it will die. And the rest of us will be slaves to Joseph. So they start inspecting the backpacks and they begin with the oldest and they end with the youngest. And of course, in the backpack, in the sack of Benjamin, they find Joseph's goblet. The brothers are beside themselves. They rip up their clothing and they begin the trek back to Egypt. Midrash tells us that the brothers really considered that Benjamin was indeed guilty. They tell him, you're just like your mother, just like Rachel. When Rachel and Jacob and the rest of the family, when they were leaving Laban, Rachel stole her father Laban's idol. You're just like your mother because she was a thief 
and you are a thief as well. And now they're heading back and they realize that they have a huge problem. Jacob valued Benjamin more than anything else that he had. And now Benjamin is accused of a very horrific crime. And they spring into a different mode. Rashi tells us in verse 13, they return to the city, even though it was obviously a country, it was a metropolis. They call it a city. Why? They began to size up the city. What do we need to do to kill off the whole city and make sure we could bring Benjamin back home? They arrive in Joseph's house. He was still there. They fall on their ground before him. This is a fulfillment of the dreams where all of Joseph's 11 brothers are bowing down before him. And Joseph says to them, what is this deed that you have done? Don't you realize that like man like me, I need this goblet? And of course, the question could be asked, why indeed did Joseph do it? So the Ramban tells us that he did it not to pain them, but Joseph was worried that maybe there was some latent hatred that they had for Benjamin. After all, he was from a different wife, he was from Rachel. Maybe the hatred that they had to Joseph, they transferred to Benjamin. And therefore, he was A, scared of sending him home with them, but B, he wanted to inspect to see what kind of love they had for Benjamin. And now he's going to see that the brothers, especially Judah, who made a personal guarantee to Jacob to return Benjamin to him in perfect shape and totally intact, Judah is going to launch into an effort to save Benjamin. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? How can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has uncovered the sin of your servants. We're all ready to be slaves. All of us, including Benjamin, what he's suggesting here is that figure out the total amount of years that you anticipate to have. Benjamin, spread it out over all of us. He's demonstrating that no longer are they going to abandon their brother and sell him and move on with their lives. Joseph responds, no, I would never do that. Only Benjamin is guilty. Only Benjamin, the man in whose possession the goblet was found, he should be my slave. The rest of you, go up in peace to your father. And with that epic cliffhanger, the Parsha ends after 146 verses. It's still not resolved. The brothers obviously are not going to allow Benjamin to remain there. And the continuation of this standoff is going to be seen next week.